I'm Forrest Brown, and you're listening to Stories for Earth. Hope. It's in short supply these days, particularly among those of us who are climate aware. Earlier this month, the IPCC released a new report warning it's now or never to act on climate change if we're to limit global warming to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1.5 degrees Celsius. President Biden recently announced plans to increase exports of liquefied natural gas to make Europe less dependent on Russian fuel, in addition to resuming the selling of oil and gas drilling leases on public land, two major mistakes that spell bad news for the climate and therefore all life on Earth. There's more, of course, but you don't need me to tell you. And yet, some people have the audacity to talk about hope. Who are these people? Two voices I've been paying attention to lately are Dr. Jane Goodall and Dr. Victor Frankel. In her latest book, The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times, Dr. Goodall says, Hope is what enables us to keep going in the face of adversity. It is what we desire to happen, but we must be prepared to work hard to make it so. Dr. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, and Holocaust survivor who wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Dr. Frankl was also fond of quoting Nietzsche, who said, He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. I struggle with hope. I guess all thoughtful people tuned into what's going on in the world do. Sometimes I try not to think about hope, preferring to keep my head down, doing what work I can to help. Other times I do genuinely feel hopeful, like when I read about the growth of green jobs, or Germany shortening its timeline to 100% renewable energy by 15 years, and the exciting vote to unionize at the Amazon facility on Staten Island. News in the real world isn't a reliable source of the warm and fuzzies, but it has its moments. And then there's fiction. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing author Gigi Kellner about her debut novel, Hope, A History of the Future. With this, Kellner has done the difficult work of imagining a hopeful future. It's not a sunshine and rainbows kind of future, some very bad things still happen, but it is decidedly hopeful. Living in the world we live in, I think just writing this book in the first place was an act of radical hope. We hear a lot about how screwed we are, but it's rare to be offered a vision of what a better world might look like. This book is inspiring, and it's a call to action to bring forth this better world. I would love to see more artists channeling their imaginations in this direction, so I'm thrilled to share my and Kellner's conversation about her novel. At the risk of sounding preachy, don't give up hope. Find your why, and let the hard work of building a better world give you purpose. There is still so much good in the world worth fighting for. So, without any further ado, here's my conversation with author Gigi Kellner about her new book, Hope, A History of the Future. Hope you enjoy. All right, welcome to the Stories for Earth podcast. Today, I'm here with author Gigi Kellner to talk about her new book, Hope, A History of the Future. And Gigi, uh, what is, actually, what is your first name? I'm sorry to ask. Uh, what should <laughs> no. I call you? That's great. No, Gigi Kellner is my pen name. And okay. it, it's, it's short for Gail Gladys. Got um, it. Okay. So it's my first and middle name also uh been known as grandma gail or several other things that people <laughs> have come up with over the years so Gigi, 
Okay. A pen name, and you're welcome to call me Gail this morning. Cool. But looking for my book, it'll be under GG Kelner. Got it. Well, great. Thanks for being here, Gail. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I was hoping first you could just tell me about yourself and a little bit on your background as a writer. Yeah. Well, um, you know, tax season is nearly upon us. And uh, as <laughs> always, as always, yeah. when they ask for occupation, no matter what else I've been doing, I write poet. <laughs> Maybe I just want to lower their expectations. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm an author, a writer. I've been an artist. Um, all my work as a professional artist and continued to create art all my life. Um, a former educator uh, for nearly 40 years. And mm. um, I, my family has lived in the same place for five generations, over, oh, wow. 100, over 100 years. I like, to, uh, I like the line, um, I live in an old house on a hillside looking over the sea. There's a song that has that line in it, and it just so describes um, mm -hmm. where I live. So cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And is this your first novel? I know you said for tax purposes, you're a poet, but <laughs> is this uh, the first novel you've written? Or Yes, yes, okay. it, it is the first novel. I, I, I truly am a more, I think of myself really as a poet. Maybe it's just mm. my highest aspiration. Sure. And I've had a number of poems published and essays um, included in, in books, but this is my first venture into that long form yeah. <laughs> of writing a novel. And boy, it was an adventure. <laughs> was it, was there anything that was, um, I guess, specifically really challenging about writing a novel versus uh, poetry or writing essays or just a different kind of form to have to learn how to work with? I think it was primarily uh, the difference is the, the level of organization it requires mm. to write a novel. You know, um, and the length of time that one is committed to a project. So sure. when I write a poem, it will often come to me almost all at once, almost whole. And I may edit a little bit here or there, but it's pretty complete within a few days. <clears throat> mm -hmm. This <laughs> writing a novel has been about four years. Oh, so yeah. that's a really different time frame. And, mm -hmm. you know, it involved... Um, it involved things like taking giant pieces of butcher paper, covering an entire wall, yep. drawing, you know, with a large arm movement, multiple <laughs> storylines and mm -hmm. notes of characters and scenes and uh, all kinds of uh, details that the story that I wanted to include in the story. So mm -hmm. very different, very different than, than writing a poem. But I did, the book does include, have 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 a certain poetic um uh, feel to it as mm -hmm. they're, they're, yeah i noticed they're... that yeah yeah cool um so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your novel could you give us like a brief synopsis yeah um well it's it's a hopefully uh it's a fun you know definitely engaging for most people yeah. mm -hmm. adventure story of survival um after uh a, you know, a catastrophe resulting from uh, climate change. Mm -hmm. But uh, more than anything, you know, it's a it's a it's a peek into a potential future. And um, 
it imagines hope a history of the future it imagines a peaceful just verdant society that could arise out of today's many crises mm. and it's based in scientific possibility as well as historical precedents um and the book really carries the reader, I hope, beyond the horizon of just a catastrophe and offers mm-hmm. hope in this time, you know, in a time of despair. It's got a bit of dash of magic, a little romance, yeah, yeah. a lot of mystery uh, to keep it fun. And, and so that's that's a that's a, a, a short, short version of what, <laughs> sure. what you'll find inside. <laughs> cool. It kind of bridges the, the book. Um, bridges the fact fiction divide and mm-hmm. you know so i include a number of historical documents in it um yeah. including an imagined um declaration of rights and responsibilities in a new world order mm. and what that world could look like very cool yeah i liked how you included the historical documents um i thought it was interesting the ones that you picked and some of them i'd actually never heard of before so i mean obviously there was like the the you would the excuse me, the United States Constitution, which I've heard of, um, and the Bill of Rights. Um, But there was also the Treaty for the Renunciation of War, which I don't think I'd ever heard of. Um, But yeah, like what, what, um, I guess, went into your thought process behind the documents that you did select to make it into the book? Right. Well, all of them are documents support the idea of the rise of a peaceful, just, verdant world. And Mm -hmm. And it helps people understand that this is not just, you know, my imaginings, but this is based in in actual historical precedents. And mm-hmm. things like this renunciation, this treaty for the renunciation of war was signed in 1928. And it's in many circles has been forgotten unless you're a history buff. You, know, yeah. you wouldn't know that you wouldn't necessarily know about that. But after Women got the right to vote, mm-hmm. and after World War One, there was a huge movement around the world to 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 find a you know peaceful solutions to conflict. And this mm-hmm. document was signed by nearly every country in the world. And it is easy to say, well, you know, it it itself is a work of fantasy, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But yeah. but in fact, you know, that is the doc. That is one of the documents that was used in the Nuremberg trials and the Nazi mm. in the trials of the Nazis. That the one of the ways that they were brought to some form of justice, anyway. I see. Um, it okay. is it it is even today when a, a country invades another country, mm-hmm. that is they're actually breaking that treaty, and and that's part of our outrage and part of the legal justification for Mm -hmm. an outrage. There was a time when it was like, hey, you know, whoever wants to walk across the border and take what they want Mm -hmm. uh, could do so uh, with no legal or um, repercussions, with no sense that the world had agreed to anything differently. So it actually is, it is affecting even today, you know, our our feelings about what's happening in the Ukraine, for example, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's part of it's part of the legal underpinnings of why uh, legal, historical, and moral underpinnings of why we feel an out- outrage about that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I thought that was cool that you included it, and that one of the, um, I guess, one of the sort of cornerstones of what you imagine as um, like a just, sustainable, verdant future is. Um, this like world peace and i mean i think that 
this often is something that people like aspire for in books that kind of lean a little bit more utopian. I'm not sure if you would characterize your book as utopian or not, but I kind of got a, a sense of that with the way that you imagine the future society. But I mean, yeah, like you were saying for probably the vast majority of human history, like war has been pretty, uh, it's been a pretty constant thing. And, you know, it wasn't like, illegal to you know declare war on somebody else so that is pretty revolutionary actually um to have a treaty like that so it's pretty cool that you included it in there i wouldn't have heard of it otherwise yeah and you know being an educator Mm -hmm. um that was also like all of the documents in the back from the treaty for the renunciation of war to the declaration of human rights that's right that was the un um uh, in 1948, that was signed. That document, as well as the United States Constitution, the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. and um, a, a rather new document um, that came out from the Parliament of the World's Religions, looks at the care of, for the earth and the mm-hmm. commitment to caring for the earth. All of these documents are included unabridged. And I did that. The educator in me doesn't want to pick and choose what I'm going to choose, what I'm going to sure. highlight what I'm going to include Mm -hmm. that seems like that I want those raw documents so people can look at them for themselves even though I offer commentary in the front of each one of them Mm -hmm. about why I included it what to pay attention to you know in in this case you know in in relative to the book so Mm -hmm. cool yeah I like that too um so um I need to actually go back and read through all of them like I've like I said, like the U.S. Constitution, I obviously had to like read that in school growing up, but it's been a long time since I've actually read through it. So it'd be interesting to go back now as an adult. Um, mm-hmm. But I do want to kind of go off something that I just said, where I sort of characterized your book as utopian. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. I'd feel like we always kind of have this tendency to classify books, um, especially when they're kind of like a cli-fi or any kind of like a speculative fiction is like dystopian or uh I guess, less commonly utopian, but, um, and you know, like many people have pointed out, those are kind of like two sides of the same coin sometimes, but I felt like your book was more utopian, like I said, in the sense of the, um, sort of new world order at the end of the book that arises out of this big calamity. So I'm curious why you decided to take that approach instead of, um, I guess the other way you could have gone with it. Right. Well, I think that I would characterize it as a utopian novel, actually, Mm -hmm. though it takes us through a pretty dystopian um, process Mm -hmm. to get there, you know, in terms of uh, what happens if we continue on the path we are, particularly with uh, the climate chaos that, you know, Mm -hmm. is looming um, ahead unless we, you know, make corrections. Of course, corrections are needed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For sure. But it in some ways it's possible that a giant disruption in the way things are is sometimes what's needed for something new to arise and Mm -hmm. i think that it's very easy to imagine dystopian worlds i mean they're the nightmares that keep us up you know wake Mm -hmm. us up at night uh humans are hardwired to see problems and to in order to avoid them usually but Mm -hmm. we're hardwired for that kind of thinking what really was much more work and much more difficult was to imagine uh, uh, a utopian world an Mm -hmm. actual utopian world 
um, where I think that most people would agree we want to, they would like to live in a peaceful, just, verdant world. It's all, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's not like it's hard to agree with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what that, what would that actually look like? And I felt that it's, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the job of artists, it's the job of writers um, to, to offer that vision. And that was, that was really what I wanted to offer more than anything else. The, mm-hmm. Uh, was to offer a vision of what we what the world we could choose and to base it mm-hmm. in scientific possibility as well as historical precedents to say this is not as far away as people think mm-hmm. and it's easy to believe that the world is a terrible place and it's getting worse mm-hmm. and that actually isn't you know, factually doesn't, doesn't isn't correct um, mm-hmm. if you look at it from the long arc of history we actually are moving in this direction and that things mm-hmm. are actually getting better. If you, on almost any scale, um, from poverty to, um, to, you know, health, to longevity, mm-hmm. to with the, with the one exception, and it is a giant exception of what we've done to the environment. So mm-hmm. we make the, that correction. We actually are, have set ourselves up for the possibility of living in a peaceful uh, just world. It's it mm-hmm. is a it is within our reach to do it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think um, like you said, it is so much harder to imagine a world like that than one that's I guess scary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important that authors and artists do that because, like you said, it's like hard to imagine what that would actually look like. So if you put in the hard work of you know offering your vision of what it could look like, I feel like you know, in some way that could spur more people to, um, I guess, kind of make demands for what might bring about that kind of world. So I always think it's cool when I see something like that. Thank you. That, that is my grandest hope. And it, yeah. isn't that, it isn't that I have some uh, special key for what the world has to <laughs> look like, but sure. it's really just opening it up, for just what you said, so that other people can begin to think, wait a minute, we can make different choices. Mm-hmm. We can make because the truth is that 99.9 plus percent of people right now, mm-hmm. even with what's going on in the world, are do live peacefully together. Right, yeah. It's easy because the media in particular um, does tend to focus on what's not working. And, mm-hmm. and it's understandable because that's what drives you know people's attention runs right, right. to that. But it's easy then to have a skewed view of the world. You know, the fact yeah. is that there's less hunger, less disease, you know, less poverty than there has ever been and mm-hmm. less war. So, you know, if we can get our work together and we have this great opportunity in some ways mm-hmm. to work together uh, on this global issue of climate crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. We can actually, you know, I, I, and I'm, talking about beyond even a single lifetime we can we can bring about a world that we can feel good to leave to our children our grandchildren whether we have them uh our own children or just you know Mm -hmm. the children of the world sure yeah and you have that really great quote at the beginning of the book let's see if i can find it really quick um i've heard it multiple times i think um it's from Martin Luther King Jr but oh yeah i can i can give it to you right here oh yeah the arc yeah, he uh, obviously one of my one of my favorite quotes, uh, and I included it in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. The arc of the arc 
I'm just it too. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> yeah, it is right. I do include it in uh, right along with the illustrations. So I, I made a few um, illustrations for the book block prints. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. just fun, and they're uh, and they they feature they feature the cat. <laughs> yes, which is a, I love the cat. A, a main character, <laughs> trickster character in the book. So it's mm-hmm. the arc of the moral universe's long and it bends towards justice. So mm. that's Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah, and I think I've heard people say before, kind of like, um, I it, a similar kind of thought, but um, you know, like history will zigzag. I've heard people say, or you know, we'll maybe take two steps forward and one step back. But it's so easy, like you know, in the moment, it's so hard for, to take like the long view of things, and and that's kind of one of the things that I uh, many people like um, the author Richard Powers being one of them has said that. You know, that's kind of like a mindset that people need to, um, I guess, learn how to cultivate more is taking the long view of things if we're going to solve, you know, these big, huge problems like the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought it was cool that you included that and also the pictures of the cats and uh, all the other different kind of block prints you have in here are cool as well. So I like that it's accompanying that quote. Well, you know, I, I, I did that quite intentionally. Being an educator, I learned long ago that you engage both the left and the right side of the yeah, uh-huh. You You capture people's attentions and imaginations. Yeah, I like that a lot. And even though I'm like um, an adult, I still love picture books. So I always get excited when there's pictures in books. <laughs> We're lying to ourselves. If you don't, I, everyone loves pictures. I mean, think yeah. the popularity of Instagram based Mm -hmm. on pictures we do love pictures and especially in this day and age when we're inundated with text anything that can be visual is a relief to us and and Mm -hmm. of course the the illustrations i'm talking about are these block prints i created there are eight of them in the book Mm -hmm. and um i think four of them five of them are 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 kind of comical a little bit. I mean, they're sure. at least they have a little wink, wink anyway. You know, because they're this <laughs> the mystical cat Plato who who is kind of woven throughout the story, or mm-hmm. who himself weaves the story to some degree. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I love Plato. Is, is I that. thought he was a great character. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's He's funny. Um, yeah, it's funny. As I was reading the book, my parents actually used to have a cat named Plato, and. <laughs> I think he was like a pretty mean cat actually so not like the cat in the book but I just thought it was funny and then I was reading your author bio and it said you're actually allergic to cats so I thought that was like even funnier but like what what was the inspiration behind Plato then like why a cat well uh you know cats are the for me they're like a perfect trickster character right we're yeah. never really a hundred percent sure what they're thinking or what they're up i have to. i have two cats so i know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about yeah <laughs> so they're they're wonderful characters that way and anyone who has a cat can appreciate uh the mystery and tricks trickster quality of a cat <laughs> yeah. so yeah they he just seemed perfect and uh he was actually modeled on one of my neighbor's cats who who actually looks a little bit like him that black oh, and really and and the cat we did name it play-doh she's an elderly woman that i mm-hmm. a friend and uh and it the cat does hold his tail in the shape of a question mark uh, which, that's I, funny. which was really like an important piece for me because throughout mm-hmm. the book this this question mark um 
is significant, the shape of the cat's tail is significant because it's asking the question, do we have to go down the long road of collapse or can mm. we make a course correction before that? And mm. I mean, I think we can. And actually the sequel to the book, which is in work in the works, oh, okay, cool. um, actually looks at what happens, what could happen without going through a collapse, like how, and it mm. will include, you know, much of the science behind what we could do and how we can mm -hmm. solve it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's interesting that you're doing that because um, I, I really liked the book. I enjoyed it a lot, but I was like, man, it sucks that everything had to collapse for it to like get to um, right. you know, this better state. And I kind of felt the same. I don't know if you read, I mentioned him already, Richard Powers, but I don't know if you read the overstory. Um, oh, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. But for anyone who's listening who hasn't read it, I don't want to spoil anything, but kind of like one of the themes of that book is, or at least in my interpretation of it is, you know, like, uh, even if, you know, humans end up in kind of a not so great position, like the world will still be okay. It's, you know, again, this kind of long view thing. So but I was like, but I am a human. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to well. have to. <laughs> so I'll be curious to see the, the sequel when it comes out. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think that that is a really interesting point that you're bringing up is that you know, the world will be okay and depends on how long a look you can you're going to be mm -hmm. willing to take yeah like, it is unlikely no matter what humans do that we will end life on earth right. Life is tenacious however yeah. it doesn't mean that we it would look nothing like it does today we, right you know we are in the midst of this you know a mass extinction event right now mm -hmm. and you know for those of us who are very connected to the to the natural world we can see it people yeah. less connected may not really realize what's happening mm -hmm. um you know one of the one of the benefits of living where i do and staying in the same place you know for over 60 years now mm -hmm. myself personally let alone my family's you know relationship to the same place is to watch that unfold it's yeah. both unnerving mm -hmm. uh, and heartbreaking and mm -hmm. it's also one of the reasons I wrote the book, I think the world's worth preserving. I, mm -hmm. you know, to, totally. to bring down so many species with us is, you know, all, really unconscionable to me. You know, even if humans maybe don't deserve <laughs> to live on much longer into the future, uh, mm -hmm. boy, I, I feel I, I feel a lot of responsibility to take out so many so many species of plants mm -hmm. and animals with us. And so there's a lot to save. There's a lot worth saving. There's a lot yeah, worth totally. looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of um, that um, kind of both and thinking of, um, you know, grieving what we've lost while also thinking of, you know, everything that we love and everything that we still mm -hmm. have to save that, you mm -hmm. know, is, I guess, kind of motivation or inspiration for us to keep trying as hard as we can. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think... Um, staying in one I know that like you know it seems like nowadays especially like for younger people it's just like always moving like all over the place you know leaving your where you're originally from to go somewhere really far away like I'm from the south in the United States and a lot of people leave to go to you know like a bigger city or you know somewhere like New York or California or like Chicago I don't know but um yeah I think um when you do stay in a place a long time like that, you really do get to like intimately know it. And it's, I don't know. I mean, you could probably speak to it as well, but it's just really kind of deep connection that you kind of start to form with a place after a long time like that. 
and you do start noticing things like oh like this certain animal that i used to see isn't i don't see as many of them anymore um you know like these trees are gone now or something like that so or it didn't used to be this hot this time of the year or you know whatever kind of weird thing is going on that you know maybe more like transplant people may not realize and you know not to say anything bad about transplants but um yeah it's just the special kind of like um relationship I guess you have with a place after a certain period of time like that absolutely um I think that actually that's uh contributed in some ways to uh denying what was happening or just not realizing mm-hmm. what was happening yeah. is that so many people move that they don't know what normal is you know mm-hmm. so um you know here in the northwest <clears throat> a year or two back you know we had um 80 degree weather in in april and yeah. some friends who were not from here were like, oh, this is so great. <laughs> Just like, oh, my God. Yeah. You, know? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm horrified because I know that the plants and the animals here are not adapted to have. Right. Exactly. We're not adapted there. People will be like all excited because it's not raining in Seattle. <laughs> you know, but yeah. We'll have a three month drought or four months drought with no rain. That's just not normal here. And, our, mm-hmm. and, and we are seeing the effects of that. Yeah. And so I've totally. watched you know our cedar trees are dying uh, mm-hmm. watch the glaciers melt off the permanent glaciers off the olympic mountains yeah. are gone mm-hmm. in area it, some of the glaciers have been completely melted off now mm-hmm. we only have winter snow on them now There's, the permanent pack is ice pack is gone um the changes in the insect population are very obvious right yeah the changes That's a big one. in the sea life are it, phenomenally um obvious to me um but also, I have to say, uh, in Washington State, we have a governor and a progressive uh, population that mm-hmm. is beginning to protect the Salish Sea. Yeah. Um, and they, because of the orcas, many people have heard this is where the orcas live, is right here out, you know, mm-hmm. right my house here. I will see them go by. <laughs> That's so cool. I out my window. But, uh, and, and many people heard about like the a few years back the the mother orca who carried her baby for so many weeks after mm. starvation. Yeah. Well, people took action and they stopped some of the practices of uh, dredging and taking everything up uh, to in order to to do what's called pursing or use pursing or fishing methods where you, they net mm. everything and bring it up. Well, they stopped doing that. Oh, good. Put moratorium on that. And wow, have I seen the bounce back in wildlife mm-hmm. in you know, the duck population, the wild ducks are, are you know, <laughs> diving ducks. There are, you know, um, many, many hundreds, hundreds and hundreds more than, than there were even just a year or two ago, mm-hmm. stopping that practice. So nature That's is, great. is very resilient. Nature, you know, it's tenacious and it, it will come back if we, you know, if we curb um, mm-hmm. our activities that are interrupting those processes. Yeah. And that is certainly true, and I think it's something that um, a lot of people don't even realize is just how resilient nature is. Um, And I love hearing stories like that, but also at the same time, it's like we are at this point that we're like we are really testing the limits of nature's resiliency, and we're at the point where they really need like human help, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) uh, to help them, I guess, achieve their uh, full potential for resilience. Um, so it's cool that, um, you know, the, the state and the local government are doing, are taking steps to protect those ecosystems so that, um, to give them the chance to do that, because I feel like without that, 
you know, they don't have a lot of a chance. So, and uh, you mentioned the mother orca, and I feel like in in the past several years, I feel like there have been a few stories about animals, um, which is kind of cool, actually. They're usually sad stories, unfortunately, but, um, and they just kind of capture people's attention in ways that I feel like is not very common. Um, so it's cool when I see books that have animals as playing main roles in them, and your book did that too, but I'm, you know, I'm specifically thinking of like the mother orca the koala in australia when the bushfires were really bad a couple years ago so i i don't know i mean people love uh, critters i guess <laughs> and like everybody loves koalas they're so cute but i mean do you think that um maybe there's i guess like maybe something a little bit more to animals than a lot of people realize like maybe they're more intelligent than we give them credit for um i don't know like what made you want to include them in your book in that way well, I think that um, plants as animals both mm-hmm. have made more consciousness than than has been popular in the la- you know to recognize in mm-hmm. Western culture. Um, science is great. I'm a big fan of scientific um, uh, pursuits and mm-hmm. understanding, but science in the past has kind of missed this consciousness that because it's not human and mm, therefore yeah. have has considered it lesser or there's even been a certain snobbiness like if you acknowledge the the sure. um, consciousness of other beings that that you know you get looked a little sideways at mm-hmm. but i think in fact indigenous cultures can teach us a lot about the consciousness of the planet and other mm-hmm. living beings and that's anyone who has a pet or who has been in the wild long enough to have relationships or observe wild animals starts to question this idea that we're the <laughs> supreme and only consciousness sure. and, or, or intelligence, you know. So it's uh, definitely an important part of living a rich and full life is to begin to open ourselves to the living beings around us. And mm-hmm. the book definitely does that with through the story of both. Well, the cat has a magical quality. Yeah. It's kind mm-hmm. of connect that way, but also, you know, the birds and there's a, yes. mm-hmm. a Lala who is a, a crow and mm-hmm. plays a significant role in the story. Crows are super smart, too. I don't think a lot of people know how smart crows are, but they are really intelligent. Amazingly intelligent. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. talk a lot about that. Cool, yeah. Um, So switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk, I guess, about how the book is set kind of far off in the future. I think it's set seven generations in the future. Is that right? It spans seven generations. It spans seven generations, okay. And I'm assuming that you did that intentionally because of, um, I guess, how people always talk about, like, seven generations in the future, like, these people will still be able to live here prosperously. Yes, it's a, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the cultural lore to think in those mm. and And so I wanted to pull on that. Uh, someone also, uh, one of my sons actually mentioned uh, in a conversation recently that seven generations is about as far as we can imagine. So yeah, it's, it's actually a lot longer than it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, I count a generation to be about 25 years. It's not an actual mm-hmm. time period. It has to do with the number of, you know, children and children's sure. children. But 
counting it as 25 years, you know, that's about um, 175 years or so. So mm -hmm. the um, seven generations, if you think of yourself as sitting in the middle of that, and three generations is about as far back as you can think and really grab hold of, you know, any mm -hmm. kind of uh, memory, right? Um, memory about three generations back. And similarly, we can think about three generations forward, our children. Mm -hmm. We can think about our grandchildren. Once we get out to our great grandchildren, it gets a little fuzzy. Just Isn't in the that same weird. Way. Yeah. It gets fuzzy when you look backwards. Like we can think about our parents. We can think mm -hmm. about our grandparents. But great grandparents again starts to be a little fuzzy. So seven generations seems to be the human capacity mm -hmm. for um, thinking as well mm -hmm. in, oh, okay. in those forms. Yeah. Going forward and yeah. backward, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, <clears throat> excuse me um i noticed i got like um one of those ancestry.com kits for christmas or my birthday or something one year and i started <laughs> filling out the tree the family tree and i was you know talking to my grandparents trying to figure out who was who and once you get to the my great grandparents it's really really hard to figure out like who else is in my family after that um so it it is weird but that does seem to kind of be like at the periphery of um I guess like our generational consciousness, if that's a term, right. but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So seven generations, I feel like is um, uh, really kind of drives home the point to like, you know, uh, leave the earth in a better state than when you found it sort of, so that it'll still be in a good spot for future generations. But um, I guess another kind of thing that I was thinking um, in terms of, you know, the, the people who, it's a little bit meta, but in your book, the I guess the sort of main characters are reading a book, and oh. this book comes to them from the future. Um, and maybe this is explored a little bit in your sequel. I don't know, since you know it's a situation where we don't have to reach a, a state of collapse. But um, I was thinking as I was reading it, I was like, I wonder like how it would influence the way that I act and make decisions today if I knew what the future was going to look like. Um, like if I knew everything was going to work out okay, would I be like, oh, like I'm going to go and eat as many cheeseburgers and steaks as I want to, like I'm going to drive a pickup truck or whatever, <laughs> because I know that things are going to be okay. Or would it be like reassuring to me and I guess kind of give me more um, like resolve or like motivation to do more today because I knew that only through my actions, you know, did something um, work out in the future, you know, collective action. Um, I might be rambling a little bit, but did you kind of wrestle with this thought as you were, um, sort of writing the plot of the book or that sort of structure? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, even, uh, the very reason for writing the book had to do with giving people hope. There mm -hmm. are a lot of people right now are very, very scared. And, yeah. um, and I think that one reason to write a book, a utopian book, where things do work out, was to mm -hmm. say, to give people hope, to give people um, an idea of what is possible. Um, but it is really only possible through collective action to sure. correct the course that we're on. I think that <clears throat> everything working out okay really depends on on that very thing on collective mm -hmm. action to, sure. to turn the corner on the climate crisis 
and certainly I don't think my book would would be left as uh, leave anyone thinking, oh, I don't need to do anything. It'll be fine. It really, <laughs> no, really won't. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you make sure to call out that, at, you know, throughout the book, but. But it mm -hmm. could, but it can be, you know, sure. and it is really a call to action and, and to, but in order to act, we have to have some, we need hope. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about this a bit. Um, uh, we need resilience and we need hope in mm -hmm. order to act. Uh, if we believe that there is no future, it's right. hard to be motivated to do anything, to try to save what we can, for example. Yeah, totally. To, created the world we do want to live in mm -hmm. so hope is very important in building resilience and, mm -hmm. and and i think that my my greatest uh, desire is that this book builds both hope and resilience in people to think yeah we can do it differently mm -hmm. that's great yeah one of the main reasons that i actually started this podcast is to try to you know i guess kind of highlight um different works that do that very thing so I think it's really cool that we're getting to talk about your book because I feel like it does do such a good job with that. Um, but you mentioned hope, and hope isn't the title of the book. It obviously um, is one of the main themes of the book, and it plays a really big part in it. Um, but I thought it was um, interesting because I just kind of coincidentally started reading another book with hope in the title recently, which was called The Book of Hope um, by Dr. Jane Goodall and Douglas Abrams. And it's kind of all about um, you know, like why hope is important and like, is it stupid to have hope? <laughs> like, is, is there any hope, you know, for, uh, the climate crisis and the rest of the world? But, um, she, I, I shared this quote here in my notes. I was hoping I could share it with you and just kind of get your thoughts on it and see if you had anything you wanted to add to it or if she kind of hit the nail on the head. But she said that hope is what enables us to keep going in the face of adversity she said, it's what we desire to happen, but we must be prepared to work hard to make it so. So I guess kind of like what you were saying in your book, it's very much a call to action. It's not just like you don't need to do anything, like everything's going to be all right. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. I think for me, the thing that resonates with what she said is that, mm -hmm. that hope is not a passive um, state it's an active state of moving the world towards what we imagine or what mm -hmm. we can imagine to be the, the best of what we can hope for, the best world that we can um, uh, preserve, create. You mm -hmm. know. So hope isn't, an, isn't a passive thing. It's an active, um, it's a piece of, of an active act towards saving the world in whatever ways that we do that it, uh, in conjunction with one another. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it was kind of interesting that I just happened to pick that book up. It was available at the library, so maybe it was just good timing, but I thought it was cool that she mentioned that right before we were about to talk. Um, but yeah, I was wondering, I know that we've kind of talked about your book a lot so far, but I was wondering if, if there's a passage from your book that you would like to read, if you would like to read that now or, Sure, I'd, I'd yeah. be happy happy to read this for you. Okay. Um, I'll give you a little a little background about about the passage that I picked up. It's fairly early in the book. Mm -hmm. This is one of the places where we get a glimpse uh, into the uh, into a future world, a peaceful, verdant, just world. Um, 
so it is also a um, just for our listeners to understand. So a mm-hmm. history book falls out of time and, and, yeah. and yeah. space and into this family's home and a history book from the future. Mm-hmm. And so they're each opening the book and reading in a different place. And mm-hmm. the book has some magical qualities and a, a life of its own. It's it's a character in the book along with Plato the cat who, mm-hmm. who plays a role. So this is an excerpt somewhere around uh, the chapter two, chapter three, uh, from Hope, A History of the Future. In the spring of 2042, the world prepared to celebrate 100 years of peace. Lee stepped off the boat as it silently docked alongside the wharf, his solar-powered engines shut down. The large white sails that collected energy were already furling automatically into place. The flag of the world, the round image of Earth from space, floated in the breeze. It was the enduring symbol of the oneness of humanity and the shared commitment to stewardship of the earth. Lee had taken a vow of austerity, the same vow all public representatives took, but the basket she carried was still heavy. It contained documents and a few personal items, but the most important things things Lee carried were in her heart and mind. The documents and her basket were light in comparison to her words. As a speaker, She was practiced in the art of remembering details. Her early work as a keeper of stories had helped train her already keen mind. Sometimes she wished she, she, sometimes she wished she could forget things. It would be easier. Lee walked down the long wharf, her indigo robe fluttered open, revealing the talking stick tucked into her belt. Stepping to the ground, she knelt alongside the other travelers. She was greeted by volunteers, young and old, who were moving among the new arrivals like honeybees. They were passing out water for the little rite, little ceremonies taking place all around her. Copies of the Universal Bill of Rights and Responsibilities were being handed out too for those not already carrying them. A young volunteer offered Lee both. She smiled and gestured her gratitude, but she only accepted the water. She was already carrying a special copy of the Universal Bill of Rights and Responsibilities the same copy she had carried with her for over 30 years. Kneeling on the ground, Lee placed her talking stick in front of her. She poured a little of the water out onto the earth where she knelt, to which we all belong, she said simply. Then she repeated the words she had said so many times, words that were being echoed around her by the other new arrivals. Water, water, cleanse my mind, make me peaceful, make me kind. Water, water, cleanse my soul. Make me peaceful. Make me whole. I'll stop there <laughs> for now. <laughs> That's great. That's a great teaser and <laughs> a great way to open the book too. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. And I like how um, Lee kind of pours out a little bit of water on the ground. I was not too long ago. I finished reading um, "Braiding Sweetgrass" by Robin Wall oh. Kimmerer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she talks about a lot of indigenous cultures. Um, whether it's, I guess, like a little bit of tobacco that they'll offer, or I think she was saying, maybe it was her dad. It's been a while now since I read it, so I'm going to get this wrong, but somebody would pour out a little bit of coffee every morning before they took a sip. Oh, that was great. Yeah. I love that. So I was wondering if that was kind of like a nod to that sort of tradition of, I guess, sort of like um, giving back to the earth before you take from it or. Yeah. And it's, it, it, more than anything, it it is uh, for me when I wrote that. I was thinking about 
the water as the universal shared resource that mm. keeps life uh, alive and uh, on earth and mm -hmm. that the act of sharing water both when the people were passing out water so they were giving water and she was sharing the water with with the earth itself mm -hmm. is a way of showing gratitude and recognition of our interconnectedness mm. that's cool yeah i like how she did that i thought that was a really great detail to include so very cool thank you um, I'm talking about a lot of other books that I've read today too. But it's just, I love um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I figured you might like them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I guess like in preparing for this, it got me thinking about a lot of stuff that I've been reading recently. And one of them, um, it, I guess is, I guess you'd call it like a self-help book. I don't know, but it was it's called the myth of closure, um, by I think Dr. Pauline boss. Um, and it's all about, um, ambiguous loss this I think this is a specific version she um, I guess uh, prepared for uh, the pandemic and people dealing with that yeah but a big thing that this book talks about is ambiguous loss which is when we don't have I guess like certainty about what it is that we're losing and um, the future kind of seems up in the air and you know we don't really know what to do with the grief that we have from that and she was saying there's a great quote from the book she said when ambiguous losses can't be prevented, it is resilience, not closure, that provides us with new hope and strength to live life in a new way. And, I mean, people say all the time, like, oh, like, if you could, um, you know, like, if someone, you know, like, was a victim of, like, violence or something like that, like, if you could just bring the, the, the criminal to justice, like, you would have closure. And people say, like, if you could just, like, have the body, like, you would have closure. And obviously these are talking about like loss of a person, but, um, you know, we see this in other ways too, like with the pandemic and with climate change. Um, so I think I mentioned earlier, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was to try to, I guess, kind of highlight areas, um, that people could learn resilience from. And your book talks about this a lot. So I was wondering if there was anything that you learned while writing this book about resilience that, um, maybe you weren't privy to before or like if just the process of doing it um, taught you anything about that? Well, I have two things I'd like to comment on with regard to resilience. Mm -hmm. uh, the first has to do with the, the climate um, chaos and the, uh, that we're, we're facing now. I, I, resilience is absolutely essential mm -hmm. um, both for living through it, but also for, being able to uh, face it, think about it, talk. Sure. We have to have a certain internal resilience. Otherwise, we want to put our heads down in the sand and pretend it isn't happening because mm -hmm. we're afraid. Yeah. So resilience is absolutely essential in, in creating an interior courage and interior strength so mm -hmm. that you can face things and so you can make choices and and maintain, uh, remain at an active participant in the solutions. Mm -hmm. So very, very important. <laughs> Second part of the question, did I learn anything about resilience <laughs> and writing a book? Boy, did I ever. <laughs> yeah, anyone who's ever, uh, anyone listening to this podcast who's ever written a novel or is thinking about <laughs> it uh, is chuckling with, right along with me now because, boy, you know, it was a four, 
five-year process. And yeah. You, you know, it was a, a commitment and you had to stay with it and things don't come out the way you think they are and uh -huh. they take a left turn here That's and a right point. there. And, yeah. You know, and, and it helps to be able to roll, in life in general, it helps to be able to roll with what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, and, and every, in every place we do that in our life, I do believe it builds strength, mm -hmm. you know, so, um, and it, and it builds our, our ability to face what's next. Sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I, I love how you, uh, literally talk about that in the process of writing a novel. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. I guess, uh, writing a novel is kind of like an act of hope then. <laughs> yeah, certainly is both an yeah. act of hope and resilience. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Awesome. Well, we're kind of nearing uh, the end of our time here. So before you go, I wanted to be sure to ask, um, well, one, are there any like organizations or action steps, any kind of resources you'd like to plug for our listeners uh, so that they can act hopefully, whether that's writing a book or something else? <laughs> and also, if people want to keep up with you, what's the best way for them to do that? All right. Well, get out your pens and um, yeah. uh, papers <laughs> for those of you who have it or those more more savvy than, than I am in the electronic age. Get your <laughs> finger ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got I've, I picked I've just recently wrote an article titled um, 12 books to help you uh, talk to your family about the climate crisis and mm -hmm. how to face it yourself. And in that um I'm not going to give you all 12 books, uh, okay. <laughs> but I, I am good. I've, I have picked out three and, and uh, two of them are adult oriented towards adults, mm -hmm. um, maybe high school, college and up. And then one for slightly younger children. If you're a listener that has a, ha, um, is, is a parent and mm -hmm. might like a, a, a place to start, start. So one of the first is this book called active hope. Oh yeah. Joanna Macy. It, Joanna Macy. Mm -hmm. So this is a this is a classic, and and I find it extremely helpful for thinking deeply about how do we move um, mm -hmm. from fear to action, mm -hmm. and and maybe uh, there's a middle step in there, and that is hope. It's mm -hmm. if you have if you if you have fear, it's because you're you're not, you don't have a lot of hope at this point. You feel a lot of despair, and this, as many of us naturally do in the face of the kind of um, traumatic news that we face uh, in, in many areas, but particularly with regard to, to the climate crisis. So I found this book really helpful, and I, I highly recommend it. Again, it's Active Hope it's by Joanna Macy and Chris uh, Johnstone. And that, that's a great book. Another one that I think is really interesting, um, this is called Regeneration. Hmm. Ending the climate crisis in in one generation is by Paul Hawkins, and okay. he wrote okay. Drawdown. Yes, and, or he's responsible for it. Highly researched by teams of people working around the world mm -hmm. uh, to 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 reverse the um, the direction that the that the climate is going, and mm -hmm. and it it it's a very accessible with lots of photographs and. Um, the kind of book that you could read with your family to talk mm -hmm. about what people are doing and also full of scientific information and very, very well researched. Uh, the third book that I'm going to give a shout out to, and this is for, you know, particularly for parents mm -hmm. appropriate for mm -hmm. ages, probably about eight uh, on up through 14 in particular. And it's called, it's by Isabel Thomas. 
and the book is called this book will help in parentheses cool the climate again it's by isabel thomas this book will help cool the climate and i really liked it again it's very accessible with a lot of illustrations mm. information and it's one of those books that, again, I think when you're talking with kids, it's so important to set the tone mm-hmm. of, um, you know, what we can do and lots of listening, paying attention to the fact that they're, they're probably more afraid than you realize because like yeah. or not, children are hearing about, about this, but mm-hmm. adults aren't doing a lot of talking to them directly about what's happening. Sure. There is a real need for that. So. I, I encourage you to talk with your children, do lots of listening, listen to what they think they know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and educate yourself so you can have that conversation um, with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, those are, those are, those are three books out there. Great, that, great recommendations. Uh, if, if you'd like to follow me um, uh, on uh, Twitter, it's uh, GG Kellner with an N K E L L N E R. Um, Instagram uh, is at hope a history of the future with little the dashes in between the words at the bottom or if you just google Gigi Kellner right now author on the internet it'll pop up everywhere the book is available everywhere books are sold okay um, on you know from from Amazon to you know I'm a big supporter of local bookstores so go to your local bookstore and ask for it but it's at Barnes and Noble and target and you know you can get it in the uk or down in australia i saw it in rupees the other day uh, in india so my hope is that it's it's widely read around the world it is a book for everyone awesome hope a history of the future so look for it thank you there it is awesome well thanks for your time today gail i think you had something else you wanted to share with us at the end is that right i almost forgot so i'm glad that i didn't okay (laughs) If you would like to, I'm going to, this is the, this is the, this is a poem that um, I wrote. It appears at the end of the book, Mm -hmm. at the end of the story, part of the book. And it's called Falling Up. We are falling through history slowly. One generation, one lifetime after another. Strung together like beads. Each of us with a hole in our centers through which the invisible thread of time passes. We are falling through history slowly, too slowly to comprehend. We are falling up. That's great. I love that. That's a great way to, uh, I guess, kind of bring the book to a close. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks again, Gail. I hope to talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Boris. Bye-bye. Bye.